Welcome to Bad Ideas About Writing, the podcast that counters major myths about writing instruction. It's the audio version of the open access book, also called Bad Ideas About Writing, which is edited, of course, by Cheryl Ball and Drew Lowy. One of these days, I'm going to count how many times I've said their names over the course of all these episodes. But hey, today is episode 39, and it's the third in a row that talks about a particularly pernicious bad idea about writing, and that is the five-paragraph essay. So let's just dive in and hear what we have to hear today. So today's bad idea about writing is the five-paragraph theme teaches beyond the test, and it's by Bruce Bowles Jr. Tell them what you are going to say. Say it. Tell them what you said. I remember learning this strategy from my English teacher my senior year of high school. While mentioning this might seem like a cheap shot at a former teacher, it is quite the contrary. He was one of the best teachers I have ever had. This strategy was taught to us as a general format to follow, yet modify, for a variety of writing tasks. However, with the increase in high-stakes testing that education has seen over the last 10 to 15 years, this strategy frequently becomes a rather rigid, prescriptive formula, the five-paragraph theme. Most of us are familiar with this structure, even if we do not refer to it as the five-paragraph theme. Traditionally, the five-paragraph theme contains an introductory paragraph that moves from a general overview of a topic to an explicit thesis statement that highlights three main points. The three supporting paragraphs each take up one of those three main points, beginning with a topic sentence and then moving into more detailed description. Finally, the five-paragraph theme ends with a standard conclusion that is oftentimes merely a restatement of the thesis statement and reiteration of the three main points. Yes, this theme is referred to as a five-paragraph essay elsewhere in this book, but the concept is exactly the same. That it goes by different names while having the same outcome shows its ubiquity in school-based writing situations. Advocates for the five-paragraph theme contend that it is a phenomenal tool that teaches all students a basic organizational structure that can be built upon in the future and, in addition, is especially useful for teaching students who struggle with basic organization when writing. While such a view may indeed have a small degree of merit, the persistence and popularity of the five-paragraph theme has a more sinister source, standardized testing. With its mechanical formula, the five-paragraph theme is the perfect vehicle to ensure inter-rater reliability, consistency amongst test graders, allowing for both efficient and economic scoring sessions for testing companies. Essentially, the five-paragraph theme influences writing instruction as a result of what is referred to as assessment washback, with standardized testing indirectly dictating curriculum. Thus, the five-paragraph theme has become the primary genre, not because of its educational merit or real-world applicability, but as a result of its pragmatic benefits for testing companies. Even worse, as a result of its rigidity in the manner in which testing companies assess the five-paragraph theme, it imparts a hollow, formulaic notion of writing to students that emphasizes adherence to generic features rather than focusing on quality of content, informed research practices, effective persuasive techniques, and attention to the specific context in which students will compose. 
To understand why the five-paragraph theme is immensely beneficial for testing companies, it is essential to understand the concept of inter-rater reliability. The original attempts at assessing writing ability on large-scale standardized assessments relied on multiple choice questions that dealt with grammar and stylistics primarily. However, such assessment methods were scrutinized since they did not actually have students compose, and as other chapters in this collection discuss, a contextual grammar instruction that multiple choice tests rely on doesn't improve writing. Such methods were critiqued as lacking construct validity. In essence, they were not measuring the actual construct writing ability they were purported to measure. Instead, they merely focused on specific skills that did not reflect one's overall ability to write. As a result, testing companies were forced to transition to holistic scoring, evaluating writing as a whole as opposed to its isolated components. Yet this presented quite a dilemma. At its core, the evaluation of writing is a subjective, interpretive endeavor. After all, we have all disagreed at one time or another with a friend or colleague about the quality of a particular book, newspaper article, and so on. However, such disagreement is especially problematic for the standardized testing community. How can a standardized writing assessment be an accurate reflection of students' writing ability if the people scoring the students' writing disagree wildly as to the quality of it? Thus, it is necessary for these testing companies to produce consistency amongst scores. That's what inter-rater reliability is meant to do, create reliability among the raters, and it is paramount for testing companies to justify the accuracy and fairness of their writing assessments. At its core, inter-rater reliability is a measure of how often readers' scores agree on a specific piece of writing. An inter-rater reliability of 1 indicates perfect agreement, and for standardized testing purposes, an inter-rater reliability of 0 0.8, 80% agreement, is usually seen as the benchmark for reliability. However, obtaining a 0.8 inter-rater reliability is not as easy as it may seem. Even on a holistic scale of 1 to 6, 1 poorest, 6 highest, raters will frequently disagree. As a general rule, the more rigid and precise the criteria for evaluation of a piece of writing, the more likely a high inter-rater reliability will be achieved. This is why the five-paragraph theme is so efficient in scoring standardized writing assessments. With its prescriptive formula and distinct features, raters can be normed, i.e. trained to agree, on the presence and quality of these rather specific features. Is there a clear and concise thesis statement with three main points? Check. Does each supporting paragraph have a topic sentence and move into a more detailed description? Check. Did the conclusion effectively restate the argument? Check. Although the scoring session for a standardized writing assessment may not necessarily be as mechanical in nature, the general premise still holds. If raters can be trained to identify specific features or qualities in writing, they will be more likely to agree on an overall score. This agreement saves testing companies time and money since they do not need to resolve disagreements between raters. While such a practice may seem to be merely a practical solution to a troubling assessment problem, it actually has profound consequences for writing instruction at the elementary, secondary, and collegiate levels. Ideally, Assessments should reflect the curriculum taught in schools. 
Yet, when high-stakes testing tethers students' scores to school funding, teacher bonuses, students' acceptance to colleges, and so on, the reverse frequently happens. The curriculum taught in schools begin to align with the assessments. The state of Florida provides an illustrative example of this. Surveying students across four Florida high schools, Lisa Scherf and Carolyn Piazza have found that persuasive and expository writing, styles frequently associated with the five-paragraph theme and standardized testing, were heavily emphasized in the ninth and 10th grades. Not surprisingly, the grades in which the students took the state's standardized writing test. Instead of receiving instruction on composing in a variety of genres and for a variety of purposes, students are rigorously drilled on how to effectively compose for the genre featured on the state assessment, which, to no one's surprise, is a five-paragraph persuasive or expository essay. Beyond restricting writing instruction to a formulaic genre, this assessment washback has other negative effects on students' writing development as well. Prominent composition scholars Chris Anson and Les Perlman, featured in this collection, have found that students can be coached to perform better on these standardized writing assessments by following a few general guidelines. Follow the structure of the five-paragraph theme. Write more words. Length of essay tends to directly correlate with score. Use big words. The higher the vocabulary, the better, regardless of whether the words are used correctly. Use multiple examples, whether they are relevant to the overall argument or not. And provide a lot of supporting details and evidence, whether they are factually correct or not, since raters are trained not to account for factual accuracy. One of the students Perlman coached wrote that the Great Depression was primarily a result of American competition with communist Russia, admitting that he made something up since he could not remember the specific details. These standardized writing assessments reinforce notions about quantity over quality in writing. I believe it is fair to surmise that most English teachers would not support these practices as methods for improving writing. The simple solution to all of these problems would appear to be merely reducing our reliance on or removing the five-paragraph theme from our curricula. However, as long as policymakers rely on standardized writing tests and those writing assessments rely on the five-paragraph theme, such a change in curriculum will not be possible. The manner in which we assess writing will always exert a tremendous influence over how we teach writing. Since, for inter-rater reliability and economic purposes, standardized testing relies on the five-paragraph theme, the only surefire way to reduce or eradicate the use of the five-paragraph theme in our curriculums is to reduce or eradicate our reliance on standardized testing. Over the last two decades, we have consistently been fed a lie that teacher evaluation is biased. As a result, standardized testing is necessary to hold schools accountable for student learning. This cunning ruse has deceived us into believing that standardized assessment evaluates student learning better and predicts future growth and performance more accurately. The logic is that teachers and administrators are biased. Standardized testing provides a level playing field for everyone involved. And yet, surprisingly, or not surprisingly, the reverse is true, at least when it comes to predicting future academic success. Pop quiz. Which measure is the most accurate predictor of high school students' success at the collegiate level? If you answered SAT scores, 
or performance on statewide assessments, you would be wrong. Time and time again, studies show that a student's high school GPA is the most accurate predictor of collegiate success. Essentially, the supposedly biased and poorly trained local educators are the most apt at assessing students' growth, learning, and future performance. The expertise and localized knowledge of our teachers is rendered irrelevant by standardized testing. In an effort to remove the purported bias of local educators, standardized testing removes a wealth of local knowledge and expertise from the process of assessing writing. Transitioning to localized writing assessments would not only take advantage of educators' local knowledge and expertise, it would enable more authentic, valid forms of writing assessment. Students could produce capstone projects that require them to compose in genres and media that adequately reflect the composing challenges they will face in college or their future professions. Writing portfolios would enable local educators to assess how students perform on a multitude of writing tasks across a variety of contexts. Electronic portfolios would even allow students to practice technological literacy skills. Local educators could work collaboratively with state and federal agencies to create challenging writing assessments that would accurately reflect the composing challenges students will face in their futures, while ensuring oversight to prevent any possible bias or padding of the results of these assessments. As long as we remain tethered to standardized testing as our primary method for assessing students' writing proficiency, the five-paragraph theme will exert a prominent influence over curricula. However, by allowing local educators who work diligently with our students and children throughout the school year and know students' abilities and needs best to play a prominent role in developing and administering such localized assessments, more valid writing assessments can be developed that will influence curriculum in a positive, educationally productive fashion. Further reading. If you are interested in learning more about the negative influences of standardized testing on curriculum and instruction and the benefits of localized assessment, Chris Gallagher's Being There, Remaking the Assessment Scene, College Composition and Communication, provides profound insights into the dangers of drawing upon business practices in an educational context, critiquing the idea of using accountability as the driving logic behind educational practices. Diane Ravitch's The Death and Life of the Great American School System, How Testing and Choice are Undermining Education, Basic Books, also provides a scathing critique of standardized testing from the perspective of someone who initially advocated for testing and school choice. In regard to the damaging effects of the five-paragraph theme and standardized testing, Chris Anson's Closed Systems and Standardized Writing Tests in Les Perlman's Information Illiteracy and Mass Market Writing Assessments, both found in College Composition and Communication, discuss the adverse consequences of these assessments on students' development as writers. Finally, if you are interested in alternatives to standardized testing, Bob Broad's What We Really Value, Beyond Rubrics in Teaching and Assessing Writing, Utah State University Press, Brian Hewitt's Re-Articulating Writing Assessment for Teaching and Learning, Utah State University Press, and Darren Cambridge, Barbara Cambridge, and Kathleen Yancey's Electronic Portfolios 2.0, Emergent Research on Implementation and Impact, Stylus Publishing, provide valuable models of more localized, context-sensitive writing assessment practices. Keywords. Assessment washback, curriculum, five-paragraph theme, 
inter-rater reliability, localized assessment, portfolio assessment, standardized testing, validity. You just heard the bad idea about writing, the five-paragraph theme, Teaches Beyond the Test. And it's by Bruce Bowles Jr., who in 2020 sent me this updated bio. Bruce Bowles Jr. is an assistant professor of English and the director of the University Writing Center at Texas A&M University, Central Texas. His research interests focus on how we evaluate and make judgments across multiple contexts, including writing assessment, writing center administration, and political and public discourse. His work has been published in Composition Studies, Journal of Response to Writing, Enculturation, a journal of rhetoric, writing, and culture, WLN, a journal of writing center scholarship, and Introspection, a journal of rhetoric, culture, and style. The podcast version of Bad Ideas About Writing is produced and narrated by me, and it's hosted at Anchor.fm. The theme music is Parade by Nocturnum, and the open access book Bad Ideas About Writing was first published in 2017 by the West Virginia University Libraries and Digital Publishing Institute. It's available online at their website for free. That's where you should go if you'd like to read a print version of this chapter. Hey, both the podcast and that book are published under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licenses, which means you may freely distribute and remix them as long as you attribute the authors. So thanks as always to Cheryl Ball and to Drew Lowy and to all the authors in this awesome collection. I'm Kyle Stedman. I'm on Twitter at KStedman and I live in Rockford, Illinois, where I'm going to eat a frozen pizza for dinner. And for some reason, that is like really exciting. My wife and I are texting about it like, hey, frozen pizza, woo. Who have we become? I don't know. Thanks for listening.